Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I am David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Sonia Songha Lee about her recent book, Building a Latino Civil Rights Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. Dr. Lee is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Washington University. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I am David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Sonia Songha Lee about her recent book, Building a Latino Civil Rights Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. Dr. Lee is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Washington University in St. Louis, where her research and teaching focuses on the constructions of racial and ethnic identities, Puerto Rican and black freedom movements, and Immigration, Labor, and Urban History. Professor Lee has received fellowship and research support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Library of Congress, among other awards and accolades. Hello, Sonia, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, DJ. How are you? I'm doing great, and I really appreciate you coming on today. I was wondering sure. if you could... No great. And I was wondering if you could begin our conversation today by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, anything about who I am, how I came to the academia, or... Exactly, all of that. A little bit about your personal background. I Like, for example, I think you were, I believe you were raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so a little bit about um, that, maybe, was, and then, then everything else. <laughs> sure. I was born and raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, I am Korean, um, so I identify myself primarily as Asian-American, mm-hmm. um, but uh, my immigrant experience, I would say, um, was not so typical in terms of uh, Asian Americans because they brought a lot of my upbringing from Brazil into uh, the context here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, so I came here at the age of 14. I was living in Los Angeles. And um, one of my first experiences as an immigrant in the U.S. Uh, was actually the L.A. riots of 1992. So I had just started going to high school here, and my parents had just set up a business in downtown LA. Um, It was the kids' wholesale clothing store, and yeah, one day I came back home from school, and my parents were home in the afternoon, and I thought, you know, what are you guys doing here? And they said, Uh "Well, come here, watch the TV, see what's going on." Um, And I saw the burning and the chaos, and. Um, I immediately started questioning, like, you know, what what is all of this? And especially in, in the context of so many debates about Korean-American mm-hmm. conflicts with African-Americans specifically, I began to question why is race such a powerful idea in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely in Brazil, I was aware of race, but it operated in a very different way. So I immediately began to question uh, the way that race operated here in this country. And then um, when I went to UC Berkeley, um, as a college student, 
we were going to debate about affirmative action because we were about to get rid of it right. to nine. And, um, you know, at the time I was a pre-med student. I didn't know anything about this. <laughs> and I would have remained as one of the many ignorant people on this topic, mm-hmm. except for the fact that I just happened to be taking a class on African-American history, taught by Professor Leon Litwack, mm-hmm. uh, whom I credit for having converted me to history. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Professor Leon Litwack um, said that, you know, if you wanted to, you could definitely... Uh, class and attend his incidents, um, but he said that if we wanted to, we could also attend his teaching. Yeah. And so what he did during that session was he gave a very historical um, and intellectual justification for his political stance on affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, for me, uh, this was one of the most intellectually satisfying moments in my college education, right? right. Um, I knew that this whole debate mattered, uh, but the majority of my Asian American friends, I got this really dissatisfying answer about how we personally don't benefit from it and therefore we're not going to support this. Um, And I wanted to know a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if it doesn't benefit us personally, why is this important for America as a whole? Right. Uh, I thought it would be a little less explanation for um, his support for it, given the history of slavery and Jim Crow and all of that, made so much sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's when I began to really fall in love with history. Um, but at the time, I was still a pre-med. And um, it was really by chance that I decided to um, major in history instead of um, molecular and cell biology. Well, I ended up doing both. Um, but in terms of my career path, it just so happened that in my junior year in college, um, I started having a lot of back pain. Mm. And that basically meant that I knew um, medical school was, you know, out of um, my options. And, you know, the easy path for me was supposed to be teaching history in high school. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Except for the fact that, um, yeah, by the end of my senior year, my back pain went away. <laughs> and then by that point, I had become you know, completely converted to history and the crazy idea of applying to a PhD program right, came to yeah. me. <laughs> and to my surprise, I actually got admitted to most of the schools I applied to. It was really shocking to me. I didn't expect that at all. Um, there was really no one around me um, who wasn't academic. Mm-hmm. I had no model. I had nobody to even talk to about this. I just, this idea was just planted in my head through a TA. And I sort of ran with it. <laughs> and uh, when I met with um, Evelyn Brooks-Higginbotham at Harvard University, she became my advisor eventually. Um, I just knew that this was going to be a good place for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, lo and behold, I, I, I uh, started my uh, graduate school training at Harvard, um, and that's how I started studying African-American history. So I, I got a question. What did your parents think about you switching from you know, being pre-med and becoming a doctor to, you know, becoming an academic and a historian. Yeah, I mean, they- my parents were immigrants who didn't know anything, <laughs> really. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I was lucky in that I am the third daughter uh, mm-hmm. in a family of three, and my two older sisters did the very loyal thing <laughs> to pursue very stable career path. <laughs> so my older sister is a lawyer, and my second sister is an orthodontist. Gotcha. And so with the third one, my parents were, you know, a lot more hands-off. 
Um, and I was the one who just had this, you know, wild dream about studying African-American history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents didn't know much about the topic. They just knew that I was studying something about black history, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, around me, like I said, I had no models of how to pursue this, especially as an Asian-American studying black history and later on Puerto Rican history. Right, yeah. But um, I was able to do it mostly because I had, you know, a tremendous support network at Harvard amongst my um, grad school friends and also amongst the many um, Puerto Rican scholars and black scholars who had pioneered the field and who just welcomed me into the whole field. Um, But yeah, there were a lot of moments of doubt because I really didn't know how feasible this was as a career path and given all the politics that's embedded in any study um, that deals with race, mm-hmm. um, there, were, there were a lot of moments of anxiety. Yeah, I have to I be bet. honest about that. But um, I also have to say I was really lucky to meet some really generous people mm-hmm. who assured me that the questions that I was asking were really important right. and that, um, amazingly, people had not asked this question before, at least in, in a historical way. Um, and that I was lucky to be at Harvard. I had the time and the resources to conduct my research and to write my dissertation. And, you know, I was able to eventually publish it in a book. Um, so I found myself very fortunate in the fact that I, I took a fairly risky path, but things turned out really well. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the support that I got from the academic community was huge. Um, and it convinced me, even though things were very uncertain, it convinced me that it was worth it, right? That's great. Yes, definitely. And that that kind of brings me to the, the next question I had, which, you know, you, you got your start in history, at least through African-American studies and, and, and black history. Uh, so how did this particular project develop? Because there's a, it's, it's not just a, right, a, a black history. It's, it's a multiracial history that includes, um, of course, Puerto Ricans and African-Americans kind of working together. So how did you uh, come about, you know, developing this topic? And, and, you know, you mentioned the question that was kind of driving in the back of your head. What was that question that uh, drove you to develop this, this book project? Yeah, so um, the whole project is, in a very indirect way, a very autobiographical question, right? So as an immigrant, like I said, as a Korean-American who experienced the LA riots, first thing uh, as I came here to this country, uh, I was extremely invested in answering the question, what is the relationship between African-Americans and other people of color other, um, or, or immigrants, mm-hmm. right? Um, and actually, for one of my first uh, research papers that I wrote at Harvard, I um, analyzed the relationship between African-Americans and Japanese-Americans in California mm-hmm. during World War II. Right. And that was a fun project, but I knew at the end of it that that was not necessarily what I wanted to focus on. Mm-hmm. And um, the semester after I wrote that paper, I just happened to read um, a Ortiz's article on the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just, you know, a random article that I read for a class where she documents the fact that the black members of the union and the Puerto Rican members of the union took very different stances when Herbert Hill from the NAACP charged the union of being racially discriminatory against both black and Puerto Rican members. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she raises a number of possibilities as to why um, 
the black and Puerto Rican members from such different stances. And um, that just raised a number of questions for me about the particularities of their experiences. Um, and when I decided to write about this, my dissertation, I certainly knew nothing about this whole history, right? Mm-hmm. So I was a complete outsider. I mean, people later on asked me, why did you write about this? Are you from New York City? <laughs> uh, you're clearly not black or Puerto Rican, right? And I was like, yeah, I was a complete outsider. I knew nothing. Uh, one of my friends who's Blumby, she said, because um, I asked her because she was from New York, and I said, uh, what does Puerto Ricans look like? <laughs> and she said, they look like me. Everybody thought that I was Puerto Rican. Um, I mean, I had no clue. Uh, and, you know, Andy Torres was actually one of the first uh, professors that I approached. She was at UMass Boston at the time. And... Um, he asked me point blank, uh, Sonia, why do you want to write about us? Are you interested in Puerto Ricans, right? Um, and I said, look, I read that article by Altagracio Ortiz, and it was really interesting. Um, and as an immigrant, I have a lot of questions about African American relationships with other people of color. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he was one of those key people who just totally welcomed me into this uh, field into the scholarship. He told me that, um, yes, I was going to find materials within the labor uh, records, but also that I should really look into the community control movement because mm-hmm. I was going to find a lot more answers right. to the kinds of questions that I was asking in that social movement. And he was absolutely right. Um, you know, soon after I met with Miriam Jimenez, woman at the Schomburg, and then um, the late Juan Flores. Um, when I went to Centro for the first time, uh, Jorge Matos, who was main uh, librarian there, um, was extremely generous with the time that he spent, you know, recommending um, a bunch of books. And, yeah, so I just kind of, you know, delved into the whole literature. William Jimenez was a filmmaker who gave me my first contacts, uh, the people who I ended up interviewing, right, wow. and many Diaz was one of my first interviewees, and, you know, his whole life story definitely indicated to me that I was on the right path, right? So this is 2003, and what I want to highlight here is that I was really lucky because, yeah, this question might have seemed irrelevant or unimportant to some people when I first started thinking about it, but Mm -hmm. 2003 was the first year when... um, the U.S. Census came out with the fact that Latinos surpassed African Americans as the largest minority group in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? Right. And that started raising all kinds of questions um, about how we should address racial justice in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, Latinos mattered, right? Right, right. And even though the mainstream media was um, painting a very um, negative picture of, of, you know, constant conflict and competition for the jobs between the two groups and um, I knew that that story was, you know, only part of the truth, definitely not the entire truth. And my ideas was just a, a clear picture of how there was a lot more overlap in that history, right? right. He himself identified as Puerto Rican and as a person of African descent. So um, I realized that there was a lot to look into in this whole history. And, uh, yeah, I just started running with it with all the archival research and interviewing and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I appreciate you bringing it up because that is a key uh, component of this this book and and of any works that really seek to 
um, what is it, you know, add something to a narrative that is so established like the civil rights movement, right? And what I'm referring to here is your use of oral history. And uh, so for those of us that you know, study now it's you know more like the post-war era this have been and in the past for a number of historians you know to to kind of revise history in that way to show this other perspective oral history has been critical and, and that's certainly a key part of your book and i know that's another research and teaching interest that you have mm-hmm. uh, so in regards to the book the the book itself focuses on this uh on the political context right in which Puerto Ricans and African Americans begin to engage in a shared struggle over racism, poverty, and marginalization in New York City. And uh, your initial d- chapters um, begin by discussing the failures of post-war growth liberalism in which blacks and Puerto Ricans were not provided with equal opportunities to really partake of the affluent society of the 1950s and early 1960s. And so looking around at their communities and some of these communities like East Harlem and South Bronx that you discuss in the book, uh, which had been stripped of municipal services and private investment. This was all manifested by urban decay, crowded substandard housing and segregated underfunded schools. In that context, blacks and Puerto Ricans begin to develop, uh, as you explained in the, in the first chapter, a common anti-racist sensibility that recognized their shared experience and marginalized subject positions within uh, New York City. So the middle chapters, which is really want to focus our, our conversation, uh, begin to narrate the issues, the people, the strategies, and mobilizations that united blacks and Puerto Ricans in this shared struggle to take control over their communities. Uh, chapter three in particular provides the key moment, I think, of, of transition in the story when African Americans and Puerto Ricans really begin to work and strategize together on anti-delinquency programs and the issue of, of school integration. And here, the settlement houses and other social reform organizations provided a key space for the cultivation of what you start to explain as a, as a more Puerto Rican uh, identity um, that, that's less connected to his, the Hispanic identity that, that had been pretty much articulated uh, earlier. So can you talk a bit about that, how you know the role of the settlement houses and these other social reform organizations, how they provide this space for this cultivation of both Puerto Rican identity and then uh, facilitate uh, Puerto Ricans as a, as a politicized minority that begin to work with African Americans? Sure. Um, so what I... What I try to address in Chapter 3 is this question of how Puerto Ricans dealt with um, the question of whether they would identify themselves politically as an ethnic group or as a a racial group, Mm -hmm. right? And this is a very important question from the very early stages of the Puerto Rican migration to the mainland um, because they were aware of the fact that many people mistook them as black um, and very few Americans knew about the history of Puerto Rico and its relationship with the U.S. government. And for a long time, the majority of Puerto Rican leaders had really equivocated on the question of race because they knew that it might stigmatize them. Right. Um, And so many of the Puerto Rican leaders, uh, I argue, adopted an ethnic identity up until the 1950s, right? And claiming a Hispanic identity was a part of that, right? To compare themselves to... European immigrants much more than African Americans in order to have the benefit of being assumed to be immigrants who are going to succeed, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and so there was a definite investment in that. And the way in which settlement houses provided a space where Puerto Ricans could work all of this out was that settlement houses were institutions that focused on 
local empowerment and local organizing. Okay? Right. And I know that the whole history of settlement houses would not suggest that uh, when it comes to uh, <laughs> communities of color, right? They very much focus on European immigrant right. um, empowerment a lot more than um, African-American migrants, right? Mm-hmm. But in New York City in the 1950s, uh, mostly because of World War II and the Cold War, there was a shift in priorities amongst the white leadership because they recognized that racial democracy became so crucial to our national identity as Americans. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, despite their ignorance about all of the issues that African-American and Puerto Rican migrants faced, um, they did provide a space for Puerto Rican migrants and um, African-Americans to come together um, and to work together to solve local problems. Right. So this was, an example that came through in the union settlement. And in the process, it became obvious that what Puerto Ricans and African Americans had in common was this experience as racialized minorities, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Puerto Ricans were given especially this sort of ambiguous space where they could um, identify with African Americans, but they didn't have to immediately claim a racial identity. Right? They could try to figure out what would, what would be the benefits, the advantages of either option. Um, and I found that really the school boycott of 1964 was this pivotal moment mm-hmm. when Puerto Rican leaders decided that after this whole history of, of equivocating on this topic, that it would really be more beneficial for them to publicly recognize their position as racialized, racialized minorities rather mm-hmm. than try to pretend that they could become white, right? right? Right, And it was really the experience of the 1950s that convinced them that this was going to be their path, right? They, they, they tried and they believed that by learning English and that by working hard that they would eventually reach economic stability and that they would be um, allowed into the white neighborhoods and um, gain all the privileges of the former European immigrants, but that just didn't happen, right? right? right. Mm-hmm. And so as the Black Freedom Movement is emerging all over the country, a lot of the American parents decide that, yes, it's actually going to be best for us to join the Black parents in this movement, right? Um, and it, it, it's a move that I think comes to in the school boycott just because there is such a huge number of Puerto Rican parents who don't send their kids to school that day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, making a very public stance on their position on this whole issue. Um, and yet, at the same time, there was a lot of fear about the repercussions of this, such an action. And so I try to argue that there were certain leaders who were very comfortable aligning themselves with African-American right. Uh, activists. Right, Manny Diaz and Hidden Valentine were definitely one of them. And there were many who um, saw benefits uh, attached to identifying themselves as African American with African Americans at this time, but who were still very fearful, okay, of what it might mean if Puerto Ricans were now known also as a minority group. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I talk a lot about individuals like Joseph Montserrat, who was, um, you know, one of the most articulate Puerto Rican leaders who tried to create a Puerto Rican ethnic identity, even as he aligned himself with black leaders, right? right? Mm-hmm. He couldn't maintain this for very long because it's an oxymoron, right? Um, to completely distinguish Puerto Ricans as an ethnic group and not a racial group continuously, even as they aligned themselves with the black leaders. Um, 
but he really tried to do this as long as possible. And he gives all kinds of, you know, really crazy uh, interpretations of Puerto Rican, uh, the, 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 Puerto R- the history of Puerto Rican slavery as he's trying to do this, um, trying to emphasize that even though Puerto Ricans had a history of slavery, um, somehow they were not damaged by it as much as African Americans were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I make the argument that this was very much of a contested identity, right? Mm-hmm. right. It, it was not obvious exactly what it would mean for Puerto Ricans to identify as minorities. I mean, could they identify as minorities but still distinguish themselves from African Americans in some way? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, yeah, this is a tough question for many of the leaders, and they tried to fight it out uh, for as long as they could. Right, and and it speaks, I think, to the, the issue of uh, you know ethnic communities that are that are engaged in social struggle and uh, trying to plan and strategize, right, how to you know improve their situation, and and um, you know that there's a group here of of activists and and leaders in the community that that kind of have to take. In charge of, of the situation to, to build a strategy that that supposedly speaks for the collective group, but at the same time, there's a lot of uh, discussion and differing of opinion in the the Puerto Rican community, as with any other community, ethnic community, right? As to how people identify and what their experience is and what the important issues are, right? And you cover quite a bit of that in the chapter, not just this chapter, but a number of the chapters, and and that's something that I appreciated because it the, this the issue of you know contesting identity as it's being built, you know, from within the group and also, you know, in addition to pressures from, you know, the outside, other external groups, how they view you, how society, you know, the group feels they're being treated by society, right? How are they marginalized? All those things, you know, get mixed together in the strategies that these activists are are, are beginning to make at this time, right? And so ethnic identity, as you point out, begins to be, you know, it's, it's a strategic um, I, uh, decision, right, in the, in their struggle mm-hmm. and, and in the mobilizations that, that begin to take place. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about you? You spoke about the school boycott as an important galvanizing type of mobilization. Also, will you speak a little bit about the march on Washington? I think I believe uh, from reading from the reading in your book, you, you mentioned there's a, like a few thousand right Puerto Ricans that actually uh, participated uh, in the march on Washington. Right? So, can you speak about that and, and how that was also an important moment and uh, mobilization that that helped to push. Uh, the ethnic identity and strategy towards, you know, identifying as more Puerto Rican and as a, you know, racialized minority? Sure. So what happened um, with the March in Washington is that uh, a lot of the Puerto Ricans who decide to participate in the march come from specific neighborhoods in New York City, right? So one of them is the Lower East Side. Just because mobilization for youth, um, called MFY, had been around since um, the early 1960s, and they had been set up as a sort of experiment to the later anti-poverty programs, right? And within the MFY structure, it was really unclear how um, the program was going to deal with its so-called clients or social services, right? and also engage in political activism. And so I came together as you know, a mixture of both academics, activists, 
They don't know how it's leaders, et cetera. And so they all had different visions about what it was supposed to be. And initially, it was simply a social services agency, agency, right? So a lot of the black and Puerto Rican youth who used their services were youth who were simply looking for jobs, um, some kind of treatment for drug addiction, um, you know, perhaps parents who were looking into advice for schooling or tenant groups, but they really didn't have any sort of cohesion as a group. And what happened in 1963 is that a number of the Puerto Rican parents who were associated with MFY attended March in Washington, and what became evident, at least to the archives that I found within MFY, is that this was a transformative experience for them. Okay, so they attended this national meeting, and they saw that there were thousands and thousands of Americans who supported, who supported the Black Freedom Movement. And as a result, they recognized that there was tremendous power attached to this movement. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they began to see that um, even though this whole time they had feared associating themselves with African-American parents, that really this was actually a politically beneficial move. Um, and so um, you begin to see Puerto Rican parents organizing with black parents and actually challenging school principals um, who had not been responding to their requests about what was happening to their kids' education. Um, You see the emergence of several tenant groups, and this is all within the emergence of the black student movement. Mm -hmm. We have core activists, Congress of Racial Equality activists, who were already trying to organize tenant groups, and when the Puerto Rican parents um, they start to join the movement, they become a critical constituency in that effort. Um, so I think, again, it, it was one of those pivotal moments because it highlighted the power that was attached to the National Black Freedom Movement, something mm-hmm. that was not very obvious in the local level, but they, were, but they were able to see that once they stepped outside. Right. And the, the other point you make very clearly in the chapter is to the, the issue of the, the importance of the settlement houses and, and er, other early type of a social reform organization participation by Puerto Ricans was that these type of groups really fostered the growth of indigenous leadership. And you, you, you insinuated that at first. You mentioned that when you're talking about how in New York City the settlement houses started to really have that or in, embrace the philosophy of of uh, assisting communities in 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 developing their own form of communal control uh, but that that uh, issue of fostering indigenous grassroots leadership was really important right to uh, this initial stage in the movement is that right mhm yes great mhm Okay, and so the settlement houses uh, form kind of the early stage of this collab- collaboration and, and serve as a pro- really a precursor for the, the coalitional work uh, that would uh, develop in war and poverty programs as, as those came about. So can you talk a little bit about that uh, now at this point, particularly how uh, Puerto Rican and African-American cross-racial organization continued to evolve uh, through great society initiatives like the war and poverty Sure. So the war on poverty provided a crucial space for Puerto Rican activists to come together with black activists um, because, at least theoretically, it was a racially neutral program. Mm -hmm. Um, If if you were to ask insiders within Washington, they would all tell you that it was a program developed as a response to the civil rights movement, right? But they knew that they couldn't pitch it in that way because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it would receive too much opposition from the Southern Democrats. Um, and so because it was theoretically racial neutral, 
Puerto Rican activists realized that they could also benefit from it. Um, and so a lot of scholars have emphasized that the war on poverty created this extremely competitive environment where, right. mm-hmm. um, you know, black and Puerto Rican groups or Mexican-American groups were constantly just buying for money, um, and it created more racial division than before, et cetera. Right. And I think that's part of the story, and it's definitely true in New York City in the late 1960s. Um, but the argument that I make is that, at least initially, um, within the 1964-66 time period, um, there was a lot more that to face, for instance, the competition for anti-poverty funds, right? So, for example, when I talk about the emergence of the first Puerto Rican leadership that decided to um, enlist Puerto Ricans into this federal program, I talk about the fact that they weren't sure whether it would be okay to identify themselves as poor people, right? And so Manny Diaz was one of the leaders who um, tried to go around New York City getting people to join some of these anti-poverty groups, and he said that some of the people would say things like, what do you mean? anti-poverty organization. I'm not poor. I'm mm-hmm. not black. Right. Black people are the poor people. I'm not black. I'm not poor. And this is extremely ironic because Puerto Ricans were actually poorer than African Americans as a group. Mm-hmm. But what he found there was this very active resistance against this public association uh, between Puerto Ricans and African Americans as poor people, right? Um, and so ultimately, when the Puerto Rican leadership decided that this was worthwhile, um, it was not just because they wanted money. I mean, yes, money was important. They needed funding to organize themselves and to improve the housing conditions and et cetera. Um, but it was a political decision made based on the benefits associated with recognizing their true status mm-hmm. as, indeed, the poorest New Yorkers, right? Julio Morales also talks about the fact that, again, initially, a lot of leaders didn't want to so-called air their dirty laundry, Right? right, right. They didn't want to be seen as a special group that needed extra help from the government, right? Because that was assumed to be too stigmatizing. But again, Julio Morales was one of those leaders who recognized that it didn't have to be stigmatizing because with the funding, they could actually organize themselves and um, gain all the benefits of citizenship that they deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, so the argument that I make is that in the process of organizing of um, uh, thinking strategically about how they should make their case to the federal government and to the local politicians, that Puerto Rican leaders were transformed, right? Mm-hmm. That it wasn't just about money, but it was really about creating a certain identity where they recognized their situation and um, tried to formulate in such a way that they could empower themselves in the process. Right, and you, you just mentioned, um, I think, in, in passing, uh, you know, um, the issue of Puerto Rican citizenship, which I've always found initiated, uh, interesting, and it really is unique in the Latino experience case. Um, and and most of the listeners in this channel will, will realize this, but for those that don't, that you know, Puerto Ricans are the the immigrant group, the one that arrived, so to speak, you know, with citizenship in already established, right? And so that's really mm-hmm. part of their their unique struggle in that uh, they have the perception. At least, you know, this is popular society, uh, had the, the perception that Puerto Ricans were foreigners because they're one of these more recent, uh, immigrant groups, uh, particularly became more visible in, you know, in the post-war era, although they had been migrating, you know, to the United States since, 
uh, you know, the, the late 19th century, right, uh, for other other reasons. But um, but that Puerto Ricans actually had uh, citizenship. And so my question is, what to what extent do you think? Uh, and I'm not sure if your, your research spoke to this much, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. To what extent would you think that the issue uh, or the fact that Puerto Ricans had citizenship, how did that play in their kind of coming to this realization that they were indeed racialized minorities um, and that, uh, you know, thereby creating the strategy of working within the these war and poverty programs and initiatives was to their benefit? Mm-hmm. Does that, does that yeah. make sense? In- sure. Sure. Um, I, I just want to preface this by saying that Lauren Thomas is actually right. somebody who looked at this question a lot more closely, mm-hmm. um, the question of Puerto Rican citizenship. But um, I would say that within the post-war history of Puerto Ricans, um, even though technically they are not immigrants, they are migrants, right, because right. they are already U.S. citizens when they come here, um, many New Yorkers thought of them as immigrants, and many of them thought of themselves as immigrants because even though Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican migration had started in the early 20th century, soon after U.S. invaded Puerto Rico, um, we don't really see this huge surge of migration until Operation Bootstrap in the right. 1940s. Right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so the majority of the Puerto Rican migrants still think of themselves as a group of recent migrants. Mm-hmm. And so they do adopt this identity of being new to the scene, still learning how to uh, just make ends meet and understand the political process. And, um, you know, very similarly to the Mexican-American experience, many Puerto Rican migrants were assumed to be so-called uh, culturally submissive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this came up a lot in discussions amongst black activists who were um, disappointed by the fact that a lot of Puerto Rican parents didn't want to get involved with school busing programs or any sort of organizing that was being led by black parents. Um, and even though it wasn't because of any sort of basic cultural difference, it, it was a set of different political priorities at the time, right? Um, many people still explain this as a sign of cultural submissiveness. And even politicians themselves use this language to describe why they chose not to get politically involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think their experience is actually very similar to that of Mexican-American right. immigrants. But... It is true that by the time they begin to get mobilized and organized and they begin to see the similarity of their experiences with African-American citizens, they do claim their citizenship, right, as one more reason why they should have access to all of these things, right? right? I mean, by this time, um, yeah, they had been working in the garment factories for decades, and they had tried to fight for housing for decades, and they did not find find it possible to find quality housing. Um, and so, even though it was a very brief experience, um, their sense of being invested in this local place right, uh, becomes more solidified. Right. So, um, it, it becomes one more tool. But besides the fact that they are hard workers and that they're decent parents, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and eventually, you know, it, it does become a reason why so many Puerto Rican leaders see themselves as being privileged Latinos compared to other Latino groups mm-hmm. because um, their political mobilization doesn't have to be threatening um, mm-hmm. to the most 
a vulnerable activist, right? Duplication is never something they have to fear. Um, so, yeah, it's a privilege that they carry, uh, but in terms of the exact difference that is made in the lived experiences of Puerto Ricans, I would say exactly. it was actually very similar right, to that exactly. of um, immigrants, yeah. Right, right. And so, as you mentioned, it becomes kind of this more of a strategic realization as uh, maybe, uh, you know, another... Um, Whatever, maybe you know a, a tool or weapon in the quiver that is of citizenship and be able to make claims based on citizenship. Although this is a key moment when that starts to you know evolve from that, as we'll we'll talk uh, a bit more. But that um, you know that ex- that that migration experience, um, despite the fact that they so called had citizenship in hand, really was it became more of a process, right, as to understanding. Um, or, or I think strategically deciding how to use that, right? How to, how to use mm-hmm. and cl- use the issue that Puerto Rican migrants did have citizenship and then uh, use that to, to cl- make claims on full membership in society, right? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. And, you, and you're right. You, re- you referenced Lauren Thomas's uh, wonderful work, and, and that's right. He speaks a lot uh, uh, more to this issue. Um, so moving moving forward, uh, I was wondering if we you make the point in this chapter two. Really, it starts to get made very clearly here that this is the point at we, which this is. Uh, I'm speaking to the war and poverty programs that Black and Puerto Rican nationalism develop as two intertwined and mutually dependent political movements. Right, and I would like you to, to, to talk a bit more about that because perhaps maybe to some it it may sound a little um, you know confusing at first because. One would just think of, you know, well, what about the, you know, longer so-called history of, uh, and it's not so-called, but the longer history of African American, uh, say, you know, social justice and civil rights struggles. But uh, what what led you to, you know, make this assertion? And this is indeed an, an assertion and an argument that you're making, right? That the these forms of nationalism nationalism are developing together. They are indeed intertwined and mutually dependent. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and I have to admit, it's a difficult question because most of us have learned about the Black Power Movement or the Chicano Movement through the lens of uh, leaders who emphasized cultural nationalism, right? Mm-hmm. The importance of emphasizing cultural differences from white Americans. And so even though we are led to believe that the whole movement led to increasing separation mm-hmm. amongst different groups, um, I think it's very clear in the New York story that uh, the groups that emerged out of the Black Power Movement in New York and um, the Puerto Rican Liberation Movement were really not working separately. They were working together, right? right? Um, it wasn't just about a rhetoric of third world or you know racialized minorities or et cetera. They were actually working together in joint projects. Um, and again, when it comes to this question, most people just think about the Young Lords Party Mm-hmm. as the one group of Puerto Ricans who recognizes reality um, and the importance of aligning themselves with the Black Panther Party. And, right. um, yeah, Johanna Fernandez is doing great work in documenting that amazing history. Um, but what I wanted to highlight was that um, it wasn't just the Young Lords Party, right? right. That there were a bunch of other uh, youth groups who were doing uh, similar things and that even before the Young Lords Party came together, um, at least two decades before, um, no, not, not quite two decades, about uh, a decade and a half before they started doing what they did, there was this earlier generation of, sure, more reformist type of leaders, but Puerto Rican leaders who were also creating similar ideas, right? So um, the best 
uh, places where I found this sort of thing happening was um, within the community control movement. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I tried to revisit the whole Ocean Hill-Brownsville conflict. Right. Um, this is a very well-known story, and it's one of the most famous stories when it comes to what black power looked like in the North. Right? And this is the basis of um, Chapter 5, right? This, right. This, right. Mm-hmm. And that whole story depicts black power leaders in New York as this beleaguered minority that increased racial polarization between blacks and whites, and even though um, the scholarship legitimizes their actions, right, and, and portrays them as um, intellectuals and activists um, with, you know, reasonable demands, the whole story um, is, is sort of negative. Um, Ocean Hill Brownsville tells us a, a story we almost have to um, mourn about, okay, and what I found in, uh, in the history of black and Puerto Rican parents organizing was that there were actually a lot of great things that emerged out of this movement, right? So, for example, um, Ocean Hill-Brownsville District was the first district that actually implemented the um, first bilingual education program in the mm-hmm. East Coast um, in 1968, PS-155 came out of um, the Ocean Hill-Brownsville Demonstration District. It was led by black leaders, but this group of black leaders very much supported Puerto Rican parents organizing within this experimental district, and um, Puerto Rican parents definitely borrowed from black parents' emphasis on black history and the importance of having black teachers. Exactly. Um, right. Emphasize the importance of having bilingual education being conducted by Puerto Rican teachers, right? And, and the whole process of um, affirming their language was supposed to create this um, complete psychological transformation for Puerto Rican students who had been neglected in the school system for years. And um, Luis Fuentes was one of those guys who was invited from Georgia. He had been living in Georgia for a long time, and when he was invited to lead this program at PS 155, he was actually really skeptical about bilingual education. He didn't believe in it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, again, the majority of Puerto Rican teachers had adopted this assimilationist view of how they were going to access quality education. Uh, but in the process, he was convinced by the Puerto Rican parents that this was going to make a difference. And he saw in the classrooms that it really did make a difference, right? So Spanish was taught alongside Swahili, and Puerto Rican students began to appreciate their culture, just as black students began to appreciate African history, African languages. And so the whole thing really was this joint movement, where mm-hmm. even though they had separate programs, they were mutually invested, um, I say, in the concept of cultural pluralism. Right. 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 That black power was about um, promoting cultural pluralism, appreciating cultural differences, and um, maintaining it. Um, and the same thing happens with East Harlem. Okay. So another example where I see black power really fostering the empowerment of Puerto Rican parents and students is in District 4. So um, this was the first Puerto Rican-led district. Uh, we saw the emergence of the first Puerto Rican district superintendent in District 4 in East Harlem, Anthony Alvarado, did a tremendous job uh, administering the whole system in the 1970s, um, and the whole thing was so successful that 
um, District 4 was called the Miracle in Parliament, right? Because it was one of the few neighborhoods um, made up of students of color who um, that, that saw a dramatic increase in academic performance at a time when many other districts were not um, showing similar um, impacts. And so this district um, really comes out of the community control movement, right. which again was led by black parents, right? So IS-201, which is the beginning of the story when it comes to the history of District, district 4, uh, black parents were the majority of IS-201 as a demonstration district. And, um, again, when I interviewed uh, Babette Edwards and had a blocking interview with two parents, two black parents who were heavily involved with IS-201, they said that, yes, they did encounter difficulties when it came to organizing Puerto Rican parents, but this was not this kind of insurmountable cultural gap, right? right. They said that as soon as they got um, Puerto Rican school aides to act as translators between them and other Puerto Rican parents, that... Um, you know, it was very easy to organize them and to get them to also create their own PTAs and um, join them in their in their fight to challenge um, the white school principles about what their kids were getting in schools. Um, and so, you know, Hernan Lafontaine, um, he 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 becomes he becomes one of the administrators at IS201, and later on he becomes the main principal of PS25. And PS25 was a good bilingual. Um, school in right. New York City, right, in the South Bronx. So again, you know, the emergence of all these programs that we now associate with Latino civil rights exactly, were right. born out of the black power movement. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so um, I, I really do want to emphasize that you can't view these movements as separate from each other uh, because they were int- intimately connected. And um, we really have to give credit to black power leaders for creating this really revolutionary concept that cultural pluralism was not this crazy idea, uh, but that it was an idea that we could implement in the U.S. within mainstream edu- uh, institutions of education. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that's a that's a very key, um, you know, critical point that that is made in your work, and and I appreciate it that um, you know that ethnic nationalism in of itself wasn't wasn't as separatist as it's been portrayed both in in media and maybe even in earlier studies uh, academic studies you know that that it really did foster uh, approaches to achieve cultural pluralism your example of bilingual education is is an ideal one and i myself when i when i was reading you know chapter five and and where you're making that point um uh, was was kind of shocked and surprised, even you know, stunned a little bit that it was a a program and initiative that was supported by you know, both not of course not only Puerto Ricans uh, but by you know Black Power and African American activists you know in the area. So um, I definitely think that 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 has an important uh, what, you know historical lessons um, and and I think that's where you know as we're running short on time, I'd, I'd like to get you to um, comment. Um, you know, at, at this point, maybe on some thoughts. So, so chapter six kind of covers the, I guess the, the the point that you make in in the book is that this was a a kind of short window. You know, really the the mid nineteen sixties or you say sixty four to, to sixty six, where this kind of a really neat flowering of the interdependence and and uh, development of both Black Power and uh, Puerto Rican nationalism in communities like East Harlem and South Bronx. Um, I was wondering if you could. Speak a bit to that. What's the significance of this this movement? You know, at this moment in time, um, in you know, ethnic politics and civic engagement. 
Um, great question. Yeah, I think that this history is extremely relevant when it comes to debates about what is the significance of Latinos in the U.S. Right? We keep on talking about the Latino vote. What difference is it going to make in presidential elections and other kinds of political shifts in America? And what I want to emphasize here is that we can choose whether we portray Latinos as a group of people who are essentially different from African-Americans who have a completely different set of issues, um, or we can portray them as um, individuals who had very much shared experiences, right? So police brutality is one of those key issues where I still see uh, an investment amongst very progressive Latino leaders, uh, but who nevertheless create the depiction of police brutality being looking a certain way within black communities and a completely different way within Latino communities, right? So if you look at the long history of police brutality, you know that both blacks and Latinos have been victims of police brutality. But today when we talk about this, we just focus on the undocumented immigrants Mm -hmm. and the violence that they experience in detention centers. But they only make up 15% of the Latino population. So right. what about the rest of the 85? Right? Mm-hmm. Why are we hesitant to talk about their experiences? Right? So again, I think we have to understand that even though it might be important to create a very distinct Latino political base and an agenda, um, that we still have to recognize the shared experiences. Right? Because these folks have um, mutual investments. And mm-hmm. how uh, our public policies need to change, right? Um, so, yeah, when it comes to the whole uh, history of what happened in New York City, what I try to document in Chapter 6 um, is that there was this connection between growing class conflicts uh, within the movement, mm-hmm. right, and the emergence of Hispanicity as, uh, an identity that, as an identity that was incompatible with blackness. Right. right. And I'm, I'm just going to give you one example for the sake of time. Please, Antonio uh-huh. Pantoja was one of those amazing, amazing Puerto Rican leaders who definitely benefited from the mentorship that she had from black activists. And I think, you know, in her autobiography, she even states that she realized that she was a black woman, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, by the late 1960s, she is one of the many Puerto Rican leaders who uh, somehow becomes convinced that creating a separate political base is the most important thing, mm-hmm. and therefore she um, she exaggerates differences between Puerto Rican activists and black activists. Right. Right. She says that uh, black activists are too angry, and the Puerto Rican activists are not going to adopt their um, angry stance. And you know, Puerto Ricans are by culture more patient. And, I mean, this is such a reductionistic way to talk about politics. Right. And yet, um, there is this investment at this time to construct Puerto Ricanness as something that was very different from blackness, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and I try to um, at least validate some of their experiences and the reasons why they thought that this was politically strategic. Mm-hmm. But I also try to document how this was a move that really created more... Uh, it, it, it erased the history a lot more than it revealed it, right? Right. Um, and so I think this is an issue that we have to think very thoughtfully about today. 
um, when we talk about the importance of the Latino vote, right. um, are we thinking about Latinos as a as only an immigrant group um, that speaks Spanish and that is racially mixed? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Or are we also recognizing that there are many Afro Latinos um, whose experiences are very similar to that of African Americans, mm-hmm. right, and that they have very similar concerns when it comes to issues about quality education and quality housing and police brutality and etc. Um, these issues are not that different. So um, I think we have to revisit these questions through a historical lens. Certainly, and it's it's one of the topics that is you know the formation of ethnic identity in connection to uh, you know political activism uh, that just fascinates me. It, it is you know reductionist to to say that uh, you know um, ethnic identity is 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 always formed through. Um, political activism, it, it certainly it, it isn't. Um, but it, there's, there's certainly a strong connection between uh, ethnic identity formation and political mobilizations. And I, and I think particularly throughout, um, I mean, I guess you could push it, you know, you know, further back. But I think particularly in the 20th century uh, and and you know the, the post-war era, as you see, this is a key moment of it. You know, at one point, embracing a, a type of Puerto Rican nationalism that's very close to uh, and intertwined, as you, as you say, with uh, black nationalism, to then later uh, evolving as as a political strategy and trying to distance, you know, providing some type of distance between that that former position and identity. And so, it just uh, to me, it's fascinating. It's, it speaks to just the the complexities of, of how ethnic ethnic identities are, are formed and the conditions in, under which they shape uh, their you know they 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 merge they develop uh, etc and you know that many times it's situational and uh, you know mm-hmm. politically advantageous even which you know i think strikes some uh, as as uh, maybe inauthentic but you know that's that's just how identity works is it not it's it's uh, there's um, certainly a mad uh, a, a deep amount of st- strategy that goes involved and, um, you know, that's built out of situational context. So I think uh, your book is just you know, wonderful at, at teasing out, again, one of these key moments where uh, identities, particularly between blacks and, and Latinos, African-Americans and Latinos, uh, are shaped and evolve in ways that, that uh, at least through popular discourse, would strike us as odd. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so. Yeah, and, and the question of you know other other arenas where I think identities are being shaped, um, you know, I, I'm not addressing those, and, and the mm-hmm. cultural arena is definitely one of them, mm-hmm. right? One could make the argument that Hispanicity was really born out of the world of Hispanic music and right. TV shows and etc. And yeah, that's definitely true. Um, but yeah, there's also a lot of power that comes with uh, the voices that are elevated because. They are congressmen and councilmen and school chancellors and et cetera. Those mm-hmm. are the people that I pay attention to. <laughs> exactly. And it's certainly the case, right, that that people maintain simultaneous identities that are seemingly conflicting at, at the same time. So one could, in this moment, uh, identify as Hispanic in one social arena, but then perhaps in the political arena, uh, identifies as something different, right? Um, mm-hmm. and so anyways, it's, uh, I appreciate your comments on this and your time, uh, taking, taking time out of your busy schedule to, to speak with me on this, cha- on this, uh, on your book and on the channel. And so I was wondering if you could, um, you know, close us out by talking a bit about what it is you're currently working on. Sure. Um, my second project, um, focuses on the history of drug addiction studies. Mm-hmm. And um, the Black Puerto Rican and Chicano freedom movement, 
Um, so this came out of my um, knowledge of Kenneth Clark as a very prominent black psychologist in mm-hmm. New York. Um, but from that entry point, I realized that within the debate about heroin addiction, which was something that affected primarily black, Puerto Rican, and Mexican-American youth in the late 1960s, right? Right. I began to see that there was this whole divide in the literature between um, historians who focus on mass incarceration as a recent phenomenon, right, mm-hmm. um, and drug addiction studies. So basically, within prison history, uh, we do recognize the fact that um, drug offense was a major reason why blacks and Latinos were over-incarcerated since the 1970s and 80s, right? right? But um, I thought that there was really not a lot of attention paid to how drug addiction um, was understood at the time, mm-hmm. like how it's understood today, right. and how um, black and Latino drug addicts are sort of portrayed in popular um, contexts as well as political contexts. And then I thought that within drug addiction um, studies, there's a lot of emphasis um, uh, on white scientists, white public policy makers about mental maintenance, and the, the benefits and the advantages of medicalizing drug addiction. Um, and yet, the only time that black power readers emerge in this whole narrative is when um, they come out in opposition to medical maintenance, claiming that it was just a form of chemical slavery, right? Um, and what I realized in the process of going through the archives is that there was actually a good number of black and Latino psychiatrists and psychologists who didn't really maintain such a narrow view. Mm-hmm of the human mind and who actually integrated methadone maintenance with political organizing and psychotherapy. Um, and so um, I, I've become really invested in trying to document that their intellectual contribution, right, not only as political activists, but also as scientists. Again, so many of these um, black and Latino psychiatrists, psychologists, who are assumed to be simply political in their motivations um, just because of their racial status. Um, but I think that, you know, they had a lot of scientifically valid points that they made when it comes to drug addiction treatment, um, and that their thoughts really matter uh, when we talk about um, mass, uh, mass incarceration and steps that we had to take towards decarceration, right? Um, I think in a very simple way, uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand why so many Americans believe that blacks and Latinos are somehow more prone to drug addiction than mm-hmm. white, right? And why somehow if it's harder to treat them than to treat white drug addicts? So yeah, there's a whole history attached to that, not only in terms of the politicians, but also in terms of the mental health professionals. So I'm trying to write about that. Gotcha! Wow. Great. That sounds wonderful. Well, thanks again, Sonia, for your time. I, I really appreciate you coming out of New Books and Latino Studies. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in, the, in developing and finishing that project. Thank you, Jay. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Thanks again for tuning in to New Books and Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Sonia Song Ha Lee, author of Building a Latino Civil Rights Movement. Puerto Ricans, African Americans, and the Pursuit of Racial Justice in New York City, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. We'd love to hear your feedback on today's conversation. You may reach us at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. You may also tweet us or comment on our Facebook page. We also encourage you to get a copy of Dr. Lee's book, and you may do so by following the Amazon link on our New Books in Latino Studies page.